All right, so at this time we're going to turn back to the Word. If you want to open your Bibles, please, again, to Habakkuk. We're going to now actually start the book. Last time we did an opening um, exposition of history and laid the context of where Habakkuk was uh, preaching and when he was preaching. So please turn to Habakkuk chapter 1. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk. So this morning we will deal with the first four verses. So Habakkuk 1, starting at verse 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth so far. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the prophets who spoke of old your words and declared the mighty deeds of our great God. And Lord, I pray that now as we wrestle with words that were spoken many, many years before our Lord came, that you would please speak to us, your covenant people today, and that the word would continue to bear fruit, and um, may it reap the harvest that you have sown. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, as we go into the text, I have three points to draw out of these verses. The first one is Habakkuk calling. The second one is Habakkuk's complaint. And the last one is Habakkuk's perception. So Habakkuk's calling, complaint, and perception. So um, first of all, Habakkuk's calling. And we have to remember, we're dealing here with a prophet who was speaking during the rise of the Babylonian Empire. And so he was seeing everything falling away. He saw the Assyrian nation losing its power. You've got to place yourself in that time, right? Like a major upheaval. And God calls Habakkuk to speak to the people. We know he was contemporary, again, reminding you with Jeremiah and other prophets as well. So he was uh, speaking in that time. So let's look at the text here in the calling of Habakkuk. Notice it says in the beginning here, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see, the burden which he saw. In almost every case when that word Massah is used, it introduces a prophetic message of doom and judgment. And the reason was simple. The covenant people had become full of filth and of sin, and Habakkuk had to bear himself this dark message and carry it to the people and and pronounce it upon them. Now, it's easy to want to be an announcer of a bearer of glad news, isn't it? It's nice to announce things like gifts and weddings and new births. But to be commissioned, as Habakkuk was, to bear and to share hard news is difficult. Can you just imagine the place this man had among his own people to talk about this? And so we must realize that this is among the covenant community, and among the covenant community, we are also called at times to bear and to carry out words of exhortations that may be difficult and not easy to give, 
but they need to be uh, given to those in need. Perhaps we have neglected to show or approach somebody the clear teaching of Scripture when perhaps a believer is walking in unrepentant sin. You know, we cannot be silent. You know, if we see believers scoffing or mocking things or, or pushing aside clear commands of Scripture, do we dare to be like a Habakkuk and bring the hard news and call them to repentance? You read through the, the epistles to the Corinthians and to the Galatians. Paul had much hardship to address and to carry to the congregation, and he bored himself. He says, oh, you Galatians, whom I travail again. He's, he's, he's almost like a new birth for them, for him. The covenant community then must in no way be an individualistic community. So we have to throw out any ideas as the modern church has so often brought forward that it's all about Jesus and me to the exclusion of Jesus and his bride, the church. We are together one. And you are called as a believer to be together with all the saints who in all places, it says in Corinthians, call upon the name of the Lord, both theirs and ours. Now Habakkuk couldn't let his feelings dictate the message. He had to deliver it as God commissioned it. The Apostle Paul talks about how we had have to admonish one another. And he says it this way in Romans 15. Now listen well. Romans 15 verse 14. He says, And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren. And he says this, That ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Did you hear that? Full of goodness. Goodness. Because the only way we can admonish one another is if it comes from a spirit and a genuine of, of genuineness, a genuine upright heart. If we're if we're going to admonish people because we want to look better, we like telling them and putting them in their place. That's not the way we admonish. The other one it says is filled with all knowledge, because the only way to admonish people rightly is from the Word of God, and that's what Habakkuk had to do. That's what we ought to do. There's no other fountain that issues forth pure counsel and truth. So you're going to counsel as you admonish. Do it with the word. Be familiar with the word. Study the word. Are you and I admonishing then with a genuine sorrow overseeing sin in the body of believers? Do we have a sincere love then mingled with a a really serious warning? It is serious to see a brother or a sister caught in sin. And is it grounded in the word? Now, if you'll notice back to the text here, unlike other prophets, it does not say in this book, the word of the Lord came to Habakkuk, or thus saith the Lord. It doesn't say any of that. This is a very unique opening. It just simply says, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. The word, the prophet, Hanavi, is only used of Haggai, and Zechariah with a similar title, the prophet. Most likely, then, that refers to a professional prophet. Habakkuk was probably connected to the order of the prophets, which would mean that his ministry extended beyond what we have written here in Holy Scripture. He was probably well-known in the community and was already speaking forth exhortations and admonitions and addressing the people but only what we have here is retained in covenant scripture 
in the Hebrew, which is what this letter originally was written in, the introductory verse has a clear separation marker. You don't see it in the English. And to, to show you the two halves of this verse, the first half is the burden which saw, and the second half is Habakkuk the prophet. So they are divided with what's called uh, markers in the Hebrew text. The first half then, the burden which saw, talks about what he saw, right? The revelation, what he was to pronounce as a prophet. But the second half speaks more of him in his office as the prophet, the man with a role as a prophet. And those two become the introductory superscription over the first two chapters because we only get his name again in chapter 3, verse 1. So you think about this. Why in the Hebrew text is it bringing out these two halves so very clearly? Well, the role of the prophet in the second half, Habakkuk the prophet, is more than just pronouncing. We often think of prophets that way. Well, they take the word of God and they herald it to the people. The part we don't often think of with the prophet is his role to then pray for the people because he receives the burden, the message, and then he also prays for the people. And this is precisely what we will see unpacked in chapter 3 completely, but it's also woven into the text here. Perhaps you, uh, perhaps you think it's, well, it's the priest's role to pray. He's the interceder for the people. And they do. And that is their primary role. And they do it often through sacrifice. But it is also the responsibility of the prophet to offer intercessory prayers. For example, I'm just going to give you two examples. I could pick up more. When, remember when Abraham and Sarah are in Egypt and Abimelech takes Sarah and God judges him for it and God says then to the Egyptian Abimelech, now therefore restore the man his wife, and then it says this, for he is a prophet and he shall pray for you. In his role as a prophet, he can pray for Abimelech. Jeremiah 37, 3. Now this one's really interesting because watch what other role gets mentioned. And Zedekiah the king sent Yehuchal, the son of Shemaiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest, to the prophet Jeremiah. We get all three roles here. We've got a king, we've got a son of a priest, and we now have the prophet Jeremiah mentioned, and it says this, sent to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, pray now unto the Lord our God for us. You see, they recognize that if the prophets receive the word of God. They are spokesmen that can then take what the people think back to God. So thus we see in this little superscription that the book of Habakkuk is divided into God's pronouncement of judgment and Habakkuk's intercessory prayer for them. This is interesting because we have in Scripture both the holy will of God of pronouncing judgment and in scripture left for us the reader the holy people of God praying in lament and trust both shape the canon of scripture both are part of the word of God it is precisely the combination of pronouncement and prayer that we need to learn from it is telling us that God is not just some distant herald 
giving a word to a people far away, but he's also drawing near with his ear as his people speak back to him. He makes his and our, our concerns his own. Often people, this is deism, treat God as some distant, callous sovereign. But the holy God, in his revelation of scripture, as we see and will see, is a God who is near and receptive to his people. In fact, Psalm 65, 5 says this, By awesome or terrible things in righteousness wilt thou answer us, O God of our salvation, who art the confidence of the, all the ends of the earth and of them that are far, far off upon the sea. You see, people like Habakkuk saw their confidence in God even though he had a message of doom. Now perhaps you have a skewed view of God. You're sitting here this morning, but you kind of find him a sovereign who's standoffish. A cold, distant God. Others look at God as a compassionate but compromising person. That's not who he is. Hear from Habakkuk. Our God is both sovereign and sympathetic. He is compassionate and absolutely consistent in his holiness. So we see in Habakkuk that his role prefigures the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God. Because he perfectly revealed the will of his father. He pronounced it. He says, I've come to speak forth your words. But he also, we know this from Hebrews 5, 7. It says, he offered up what? Prayers and supplication while he dwelled on this earth. And so have you seen in the book of Habakkuk, as we will see, the contours of the Lord Jesus Christ in the shadows of this Old Testament prophet? That brings me to the second point, Habakkuk's complaint. Most prophets begin with an announcement of a word of God from or about God, but you don't get that in this one. This one opens up with a volley of complaint, similar to other scriptures where we see the Psalm 13, 1 would be an example, where we see the people of God presenting honest, humble, pleading with God because he seems so far away. What do we see in Habakkuk? We see the shock of Habakkuk. He says, violence. You see that? Even cry out unto thee in verse 2 here of violence. Violence. Undoubtedly, that means Habakkuk had tried to teach the people. He, he had pled with them to beseech their ways. He had pled with God, and nothing seems to be happening. The warnings didn't seem to be going anywhere. The prayers didn't seem to be going anywhere. Judah's heart was hardened. It was interesting, that word violence, because you think back to Genesis 6. What do we know about Genesis 6? It says in verse 11 that the earth was filled with violence. And what happened? The flood came upon the entire globe. But now after the flood, God takes Abraham and takes a peculiar people to himself. He says, my treasure. And they have become full of violence. They are no different than the people before the flood. Is it any wonder then that the Apostle Peter says this? He says, judgment must begin at the household of God. So Habakkuk pleads for him who has covenanted with his people. He pleads to God and he's, he's almost saying, where are you God? Where is God? Is the covenant any good to you? Because obviously the people are going out of control here. Many times he had cried out. Why had God not answered? Why the silence. 
Now perhaps you resonate with that, the silence of God. Perhaps you or someone close to you is going through darkness. Maybe it's a health issue. Perhaps it's incredible family turmoil. Maybe it's marital breakdown. Maybe it's financial strain. Maybe it's depression. You haven't told many people about it, but perhaps you've prayed and prayed. Perhaps it's larger. It's what you see in the world, the injustices. Maybe it's the injustices you've experienced in the process of what you're going through. Maybe it's with the medical system. Maybe it's with the way your family has treated you. All these different things can be happening, and you've experienced the backstabbing. You witnessed the backstabbing, the greed, the rejection. Perhaps your heart is aching when you see the moral decay of society, when you read about the callous slaughter of the unborn, and you hear about the sickening worldview that is distorting identity and sexuality, and you've pled, are you praying to God? And you've pled, and you've pled, and now you're at Habakkuk's point. You're crying out, saying, God, where are you? Now, perhaps you're on the other side of the fence and you're thinking these types of prayers are sinful. I mean, after all, how dare we question where God is? How dare we question Him for being silent? It may seem blasphemous. How dare we accuse the Almighty of absence and not seemingly to be in control? We must realize that prayers like this and the reality of unanswered prayer has a precedent from Scripture itself. And so recognizing unanswered prayer as it is, is not necessarily sinful. In fact, realize this. Remember when Israel asked for a king and Samuel's not so happy about it? And God says this through Samuel the prophet. He says, and ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye, shall, which ye shall have chosen you. And then it says this. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. So there is precedent in scripture for unanswered prayer for people in wickedness, getting what they deserve. But it can also come, as it does in Habakkuk, from true faith, from the righteous from a righteous heart of faith that confidently believes that God is almighty and he is holy, that he is not absent. And yet you're wondering, in faith, in the midst of the darkness, crying out in anguish, that is biblical, that is a category we must hold to. Perhaps the most powerful example of a trusting anguish of heart, crying out to God, is in Psalm 22, where David pens the words that the Lord Jesus will cry out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring, O oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. And so this has biblical precedent. Prayers like this express, express perplexity, and they are appropriate. So long as they, and here's the key, so long as they are offered in the context of trust. So do not abandon the anchor of hope in the darkness. What we see in Habakkuk, his role as an intercessory prophet, is that we must keep pleading. God is not asleep. 
He is not as man. His purposes are firm. His counsels are sure. Ask yourself, was Christ who prayed that prayer, was he defeated in his darkest hour? Was it not ultimately the greatest hour of the triumph of God Almighty? I quoted Hebrews 5, 7 earlier on where it talked about Jesus who in the, in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications. You know how that verse ends? It says this, and he was heard in that he feared. He cried and he was heard. So as you fear God, cry out to him. Unburden your heart to him, but never stop fearing him. That's important. Now look at the lessons we can learn from this. First look at Habakkuk's ultimate commitment. Often, you and I, we can be more sensitive to that which affronts us, belittles us, despises me, and easily overlook that which affronts and despises and belittles God's name. And so Habakkuk, we see his primary concern is not about himself. Where do you see his interest in himself? It's nowhere to be found. It is about the people of God and how God's name is slandered among them. The covenant people are full of murder. And so he's, he's concerned about the covenant people because they reflect who? The covenant Lord. And how do we know that? Because he uses the words. He says, oh Lord, Jehovah. He uses the covenant name and he pleads to them, what's happening to your people? He pleads to God. When you and I see professing Christians disinterested in holiness, as we talked about earlier, are we then inflamed with a holy displeasure and undertake the cause of God? We are ambassadors here to undertake His cause, to be His voice. Or does it come down to, well, I'm not too comfortable doing that and we're more interested in saving face and not stirring the pot? Is that more important than the vindication of our God's name among this community? Have you considered, secondly, Habakkuk's holy burning zeal in his pleading? Do we pray for this church to be a holy church? Do we pray for the churches in our nation to be singular to the commitment of God, to God's word and his gospel? Have you done anything with the calling upon believers to pray for the covenant community? Are you encouraging one another to pray more? Do we take Paul seriously when the Apostle Paul, like Habakkuk, says this? He commands this when he says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. See, prayer should be the air we breathe as a church. Why is it that... In most churches, the prayer meeting is the least attended of all gatherings. Why is that? What will rouse us to pray more? Have we not realized how incredibly weak and ineffective we are? Have you hit the roadblock of evangelism? What is the roadblock? Dead hearts. They should cause us to pray more. God be merciful to this church that we pray more. That we plead more to Him. 
Notice also that Habakkuk does not let go of his cable to heaven. And perhaps you've been tempted to let go. You're like, I've prayed so many times, I'm letting go. Habakkuk doesn't let go. He keeps pleading. He gets more intense. Perhaps the years of an unconverted child are wearing on you. And you start thinking, does praying even matter? Why am I even doing this? God's not hearing me. We may be tempted to give up. But it is precisely the persistence of Habakkuk's prayer, in spite of the seeming silence, that demonstrates what? What does it demonstrate? Incredible faith. Incredible trust. Habakkuk's persistence actually becomes part of Scripture itself, and it speaks volumes to us. He is speaking through his pleadings. Learn from the pleading prophet. So do not stop praying. Thirdly, have you seen in Habakkuk the shadows of the greater prophet? Have you considered the heartfelt intercessions of the Lord Jesus Christ, which are outlined through the shadows of Habakkuk? Have you uh, seen Jesus, whose prayers never cease to fragrance the courts of heaven, the, the throne of the Almighty for his saints? In fact, pleading in his intercessory role as priest, as prophet, and as king. The Bible says peculiarly in Hebrews 7.25 that he never, he, sorry, he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Look at verse 3. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. In this verse, verse 3, Habakkuk is shocked that the Lord would have his prophet, his own mouthpiece, behold such wickedness. Learn from this. God's people should not expect special immunity from seeing evil. I've heard that. I serve God, why am I seeing this? There's no immunity. Habakkuk's experience is the polar opposite of the health and wealth gospel. There's nothing healthy and wealthy here. It's all devastation. But the question is understandable. Why does God allow his saints to witness such incredible evil? Think, though, through that for a second. Think about the implication of the fact that God causes Habakkuk to see these things. The very question implies a conviction that Habakkuk has about God. The question arises, why do you let me see these things? Because Habakkuk knows God can take him out of it. You see, if God was not powerful, the question would be kind of a moot point. If our God is too low on the, on the ladder, if he's anything like us, you're like, well, of course he can't take you out of it. He's not sovereign. But Habakkuk knows the sovereignty of God. He doesn't see a God who's wringing his hands in frustration. God is sovereign. Now notice in the verse the progression of the pairs. Look carefully in verse 3. Show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance. The first pair, iniquity and grievance. The next pair, and it leads to spoiling and violence. And the last pair that it leads to in this progression is strife and contention. Notice what's happening here. What starts in the heart, iniquity and grievance, spreads into the community, spoiling and violence, and subsequently divides the community, strife and contention. You see the progression of those pairs, those parallels. 
And that is exactly how the cancer of sin grows, isn't it? It never stays personal. We'd like to think that. These are my personal sins. They always spill over their banks into the community. And slowly the community gets toxified. James talks about this. Because he realizes this when he starts on the other end. He starts in the community and he says, From whence comes wars and fightings among you? Division in the community. Come they not hence even of your lusts which war in your members? So he's talking about internal. But it always spills out. Let us learn then from Habakkuk to guard the covenant community from pet sins in ourselves. They're cultured within you and me. And we're affecting the body. One of the biggest sins that is insidious, that slowly destroys marital relationships, father son relationships, mother-daughter mother, relationships, and infects the church because it brings parties, is unforgiven sin. You've been affronted, and you will not forgive. You hold it against them. Oh, you may not talk about it. You might smile, but you have not forgiven. That is a sin that divides and that we must repent of. Perhaps it's grudges. There are weeds being sown across the community when grudges are held. Perhaps it's ingratitude. Are we a community that is thankful to God or a community that thinks we deserve? How do we interact with one another? I deserve better. I deserve that you come and talk to me. I deserve more, more. And once we get that, we start to bring a toxin into the community. You see, respectable sins, as Jerry Bridges would call them, become cancers. And let us repent. How do you repent? How do you pull the weeds? By repenting, by turning from. Repentance is turning around. Bring them before the throne of God. It's asking for forgiveness, but turning, forsaking these things. And then let us also sow the seeds of humility and patience, mercy and sacrificial service. You see, ministry, diakonis, is for all of us. We ought to serve one another. And in serving, you bring cohesion. You bring love because you come underneath. You stoop instead of raising yourself above. Are we not a family of faith? Do we not want to bless the holy people of God? Here's a question. When is the last time you took inventory of how you affect the covenant community? You think about that when you go home today. How did I affect the covenant community in church today? It's a good question to ask. Back to Habakkuk. He implies, remember, that if the Lord had stepped in earlier, things would not have gotten this bad. But now there's open strife. We've got to remember, wickedness will touch God's heart more than it does ours. So Habakkuk is pleading to him whose heart breaks for his own people. The very fact that Judah was permitted to get this bad shows actually how incredibly long-suffering God is for his people. Now, how do you respond to the patience of God in your life, in my life? You know, some in our community, 
We'll talk on a broad sense first. Abuse it. Well, God's patient with us, so we heap up more sins, more time. I've got more time to sin. Why not? Is that how you respond to God's patience? Or do we thank him for his patience? And does the very patience of God stir up the embers in our life to more vigilance, more hatred of sin, more pursuit of holiness? You see, the patience of God can be received in two ways, and we respond either way. You know, 600 years after Habakkuk lived, not much had changed. You see, because Jesus entered a world full of strife and contention. Even his own disciples had a verbal flexing competition about who was the greatest. Remember that? And how patient Jesus was with his own disciples. Yes. How patient he is with you and me, our insolence, our slowness to listen, and the way we want to one-up one another. You see, through Habakkuk's clear signpost of incredible patience of God, we see not in patience that justice will be overlooked, as if that's how a lot of people look at patience. Well, God is kind of forgetting. Wipe it under the rug. No, no, no. It's not how God works. His justice will come. But he is forbearing, long-suffering today. What's the evidence of that? We're sitting here today. Were it not for the patience of God, you and I would not be sitting here. Lastly, Habakkuk's perception. Verse 4. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. Notice where he turns. He talks about the law and judgment. Those two terms in the Hebrew, Torah, the law, and Mishpat, judgments, together always form a combination of the covenant documents. The holy law of God revealed in Exodus. The law was the soul and the heart of the covenant community. It was the anchor for covenant well-being. You wanted a community to flourish? You need the law. And you need people who can judge it rightly. Mishpat, judgments of the law. It was the chief pillar for a flourishing community. And he says the law of God is slacked or it's numbed would be another translation. One older translation, the Miles Coverdale actually says it's torn up. Of course, it was a uh, written in stone document. But you understand Because it seems that God is not awakened into action about his holy law. Like he gave the law. Why is God not allowing judgment to to proceed? And therefore, at the end of the verse, you see, and therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Or, in other words, the law's force is paralyzed. It can't act anymore. Notice what this means. This means that Habakkuk believes that the law can only function properly as long as the Lord intervenes to stop evil. But the Torah, the law, it's only a guide for the community, isn't it? It can't act well when, notice what he says, when the wicked doth compass about the righteous. That means the wicked swarm around the righteous. So can you just picture a judge who wants to do the right thing. But all around him are wicked people that are influencing him and forcing him into a different decision. When there's just few righteous people, 
who hold some regard for God and justice, and they, they say something, what happens? They get swarmed like a bunch of flies, and consequently, justice gets thrown out the window. Now, we see this all the time in our society. Right now, we are seeing lawmakers and judges bending the knee to the wicked. They are being swarmed with political correctness. They are being swarmed with ideologies that are contrary to the law of God. And they are capitulating. Even churches, church leaders, are succumbing to the acceptability pressures. I just heard again recently of another professor who taught for years in a conservative reformed seminary that because his son is now homosexual, he's changed his entire view on this thing. He's succumbing to the pressure. And so just as Habakkuk bemoans the abandonment of the law, we are seeing this. Remember when we were doing door to door and we'd ask people if they knew the Ten Commandments and the more the years go on, it seems the less people knew the Ten Commandments anymore. You remember when the Supreme Court of the USA ruled that the display of the Ten Commandments in courthouses was actually an official endorsement of religion and therefore impermissible. Judges from the Supreme Court of the USA threw out the highest standard. They placed themselves over that document and said, out. And they themselves capitulated on justice. They slacked the law. What a reminder this verse is to be courageous and for righteous rule. Fathers among us, whether you are ruling in your home or church leaders among us, when you oversee the church or those of you who may one day rule in the community, whether in national, provincial, or local spheres, though we cannot do it perfectly, here's a question. Are you committed as parents and as members of society and members of this church to act with courage? And are you committed to the word of God alone? Don't answer too quickly. Think about that. The consequences may make you be surrounded by the wicked. Where will you stand? Luther said this of rulers who lacked courage. He says, really, there's two kinds of villains. Those who do wrong, like criminals. But secondly, he says, the worst kind of villain are those who set off and defend the same wrong under the name of right. Those are worse villains. The judges who distort justice. Now, like Habakkuk, you and I may wonder how long will God permit this nation, Canada, to sink into lawlessness? How much longer will God allow uncomp- or compromising churches in Canada to twist his word? The answer? I don't know. I can't tell you that. But this is certain. The more people pursue the lusts of the flesh and make war against God, and they reject the gospel of peace, and they war against it, the more certain we can be that this nation and those churches 
will be visited by God Almighty as he is preparing his judgment. James 5, 9, Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Habakkuk's main problem, his main lament, is not so much that there's evil presence. You've got to remember this. It's not even that magistrates are failing. He doesn't even mention the word magistrate here. Right? He says the righteous. He doesn't talk about them. He implies it. What's his main focus in verse 4? The Torah. The law of God. The law of God is rendered inoperative. And if the law is ineffective, here's the natural follow-up. What good is the covenant? Because if the covenant documents that God gave to his people don't seem to work, if God doesn't hold them up, the covenant's going to fail. That's the question. And it's a very real question. Now think about this for a second. Habakkuk's descriptions of God's seeming absence of judgment are actually descriptions of his presence of judgment. You see, he thinks God is absent and that the law is not being upheld. It actually is. It's different than he thought. It's, a much, it's much like Romans 1 where the Apostle Paul says something similar where it says that the wrath of God is already being revealed as God hands people over to their own devices. You see, punishment of sin is experienced in its consequences. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 says the same thing. He says this, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And the law is just watching that happen. And God has already judged in letting a nation go as dark as it will. God has already judged. He is executing, but he's executing in the consequences. I had somebody say to me a number of weeks ago, he says, why did this fall upon my life? Why is this happening? And I said, Galatians 6, 7, you are reaping what you have sown. Don't be surprised. But even more, Habakkuk describes another thing the Apostle Paul teaches. And that is something about the law itself. Because Habakkuk's expectations of the law didn't go far enough. The Torah, the law of God, can describe the shape or the outlines of obedience. But it can't create the heart of obedience. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 7, isn't it? He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. The problem isn't the law. He calls it good in the same chapter. The problem is the heart. That's Israel's problem. It's our problem. The Torah cannot change the inside. It's an inward issue we have. And that is why parents, if the way you parent your children is behavioral modification, just corrective discipline all the time, but you do not talk about heart transformation in your children, you are missing the mark. You are setting up a Judah situation. You see, this is why you and I cannot be saved by how well we obey the law. 
We are without strength. The problem that Habakkuk doesn't talk about, but that's actually played out in the reality, is inward corruption. And so the answer to Habakkuk's complaints and his cries and his laments must lie outside of the law and outside of the people of the covenant because both cannot address the heart issue. The answer then has to come from somewhere else. Well, what's left? The nations? Is that the solution? No. The only one left is the lawgiver himself. The covenant God himself coming down in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? Jesus never slacked the law. He was charged with it. Remember, say not that I've come to destroy the law. I've come, not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Though the princes of this world are corruptible and malleable, not our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is both just, the perfect law keeper, and in his perfect justice, he is the justifier of wicked men who unjustly slacked justice, slacked the law, and condemned that perfect man to death. You see, Christ is not opposed to the law. His fulfillment of it and his bearing of its wrath gives the opportunity for us to freely receive the grace of forgiveness and to now walk in the freedom of forgiveness and there out of obey the law. Will you receive his just and free grace as your only righteousness. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your law. It is the delight of your people. Therewith we know you more and ourselves, but also our Savior. And we pray that we would think higher and higher of him and realize, Lord, that by the keeping of the law, no flesh shall be justified in thy sight. But that we look to him who did keep it perfectly, wholly, and completely. O Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who is outside of him, that he would turn to Jesus and be saved. In your name we pray. Amen.